This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the story of the first world-famous African-American artist, Edmonia Lewis. My dearest listeners, it's 2021. We made it. The verdict is still out on whether this year will be any better, but I'm cautiously optimistic. If you're wondering where I have been, well, I took a month off and then I had my yearly perfume sale and then some of my perfumes went viral. So I've been buried in perfume work the last two months and I'm very excited to get back to Storical. I'm shooting for two episodes a month for the next few months until things calm down enough for me that I can go back to weekly. Thanks so much for sticking with the show. And speaking of, if you haven't already, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts as it helps me beat the algorithm and help others find Storical. All right, let's get to today's episode. February is Black History Month in America. And to be clear, every month is Black History Month because Black history is American history. But a lot of the stories that we tend to study when it comes to Black history are those all about suffering, and we don't give a ton of focus to art and joy. To that end, I'd like to introduce you to Edmonia Lewis, the first American artist of color to achieve international fame. And notice there that I didn't say the first American woman artist of color. No, no, she was the very first one. She lived smack in the middle of the Civil War era and had plenty of adversity, but she's a person for whom that was not the central part of her story. So to that end, let's learn about Edmonia. Imagine yourself in a sun-drenched Roman square as the chisel in your hand reveals flawless faces beneath their marble edifice. Chapter 1. Wildfire. There are conflicting accounts of when Edmonia was born. Edmonia was a person that was very aware of identity and appearances and was very much a proponent of playing all cards that she was dealt. Because of this, a lot of her account of her early life, we have to take with a grain of salt. The years she gave out for her birthday were 1842, 1844, and 1854. 1844 seems to be the one that lines up with dates that come up later in her life. She did not know her birthday and went with July 4th because at the time, especially for African-Americans, if one did not know their birthday, they would go with America's birthday. Interesting little factoid for you there. She was born free in upstate New York to Catherine Lewis, a woman of mixed ancestry. Catherine was part Ojibwe, which is usually anglicized to Chippewa, as well as African-American. While Edmonia's name at birth was Mary Edmonia Lewis, her Ojibwe name was Wildfire, and she went by Wildfire during her early years. There's some disagreement on who Edmonia's father was. He was either an Afro-Haitian immigrant who worked as a gentleman's servant named Samuel Lewis, or he was the writer Robert Benjamin Lewis. We do know a bit about Edmonia's older half-brother, and he will enter our story soon, but he had given an account that their father was a West Indian Frenchman. Plus, his name was also Samuel, so that would make sense. Regardless of her parentage, sadly, Edmonia was an orphan by the age of five years old. She was taken in and raised by her Ojibwe aunts in Niagara Falls, New York. Edmonia later said that she spent her early years roaming forests, foraging for food, and selling Native American crafts to tourists. There's some disagreement on how they lived, but she did sell baskets, embroidered clothing, and moccasins from Niagara Falls to Toronto. 
Her older half-brother Samuel went by his Ojibwe name, which was Sunshine, and he worked as a barber. In 1852, Samuel decided to try and make his fortune out west, since the California gold rush was still happening. He left Edmonia with her mother's tribe, where she remained until she was 12 years old. Samuel hit it big in the gold rush in San Francisco. He became quite wealthy and was a pretty good brother, sending money for her upkeep and education. She first went to an abolitionist prep academy in New York, which proved to be formative. At this school, she met abolitionist activists who would go on to help her throughout her life and career, and many of them later became subjects for her art. Samuel and her newfound abolitionist friends were then able to get her into Oberlin College, one of the only colleges in the country that admitted women and people of color. At Oberlin, she found herself in the study of art, particularly the neoclassical style. She made the acquaintance of staunch abolitionist Reverend John Keep and lived with he and his wife during her time at the school. While higher education may have been a dream come true for a woman of color during this time period, it sounds like she was in a get-out situation. Everyone there patted themselves on the back for being abolitionist, but she was subjected to racism every day. The biggest injustice for her was that she didn't get the same opportunities to speak up or participate in her classes. Okay, now we get to some salacious scandal. Edmonia wasn't the only young lady living with the reverend and his wife. Two other young women also lived with them. One day, the three young ladies wanted to go on a sleigh ride with some young gentlemen, which is the most 1800s date I've ever heard of. Before they went, Edmonia made them all some spiced wine. This wine had Spanish fly in it, which is a type of beetle. In the 1800s, people considered Spanish fly an aphrodisiac, but really it was poison. The two other young women got violently ill to the point that it was believed they would die. They did not die, and at first, no one really did anything about it. But word spread to the town, and the townspeople were not as woke as the people at the college, and so one night as Edmonia was walking home, a mob beat her nearly to death and dragged her into a field and left her to die. After she was found, she was arrested for poisoning. Now, no one knows what the intention here was, but there are various theories. Some believe that Edmonia was really trying to poison the women. Maybe they were really racist to her. Another theory is that it really was innocent, and since they were sneaking out to hang with some boys, they willingly took an aphrodisiac. Another theory, grounded in the fact that Edmonia never married and did live in the company of other women, posits that she gave them the aphrodisiac, hoping that something more would happen between the three of them. No one knows, but those are the main theories. This incident went to trial, and Edmonia had a rather famous lawyer, John Mercer Langston, who was a great uncle of Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes, and was also the first dean of Howard College and the first president of another HBC, Virginia State University. He managed to get her off the hook by arguing that since the contents of the victim's stomachs had never been tested for poison, you couldn't charge Edmonia with poisoning them. Even though she got out of the charges, the other students turned on her, and her last year at the college was miserable. She was isolated and blamed for everything that went wrong. The final straw was that she was accused of stealing art supplies. She was either kicked out or left voluntarily before she was able to get her degree. Chapter 2, Abolitionist Art After the unpleasantness at Oberlin, Edmonia landed in Boston. In later interviews, she told people that when she arrived in Boston and saw a statue of Benjamin Franklin, she had no idea what it was and thought it was a stone man, and she wondered if that was something that she could make herself. This was an obvious fabrication, as she had already been studying art at the college level, 
but is an example of her propensity to kind of paint herself as exotic and as what was called the noble savage. She was keenly aware of identity and knew how to make hers work for her, even if she wasn't always PC about it. Reverend John Keep, the guy who she boarded with while at Oberlin, was never swayed by the sensational poisoning allegations made against her and wrote her a letter of introduction to none other than William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison was one of the most prominent abolitionists in U.S. history and ran a popular anti-slavery newspaper called The Liberator. Garrison sort of took Edmonia on as a personal project and tried to connect her with sculptors so that she could train in the medium. It's unclear if it was because of her race or the fact that she was a woman, but three popular sculptors turned her down before a marble sculptor named Edward Augustus Brackett agreed to take her on as a student. Brackett also ran in abolitionist circles, and he specialized in marble busts of some of the heroes of the movement, such as Garrison and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who will also come up again. Now, let's talk about how Brackett taught Edmonia, because this is certainly a doozy. First, he'd give her pieces of his sculptures to copy. He would then critique her work. So far, sounds legit. Then, he would break her sculpture and have her do it again and again until she got it perfect. Under his tutelage, she did sell her first sculpture. It was of a woman's hand. But their relationship soured before the year was out. I don't know, maybe because he kept breaking her sculptures. Anyway, she set up her own studio and had her first solo exhibition, so things were going pretty well for her. At the time, people were super into medallions that featured the likenesses of famous people. She became well-known for making busts and medallions of abolitionists. Her big break came when she made a bust of Union Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. Colonel Shaw was the commander of one of the very first all-African-American Civil War regiments. Not only did he accept the position, which other people had passed on, he told his troop to hold out for equal pay to the white troops. After he was killed in battle, he became a legend. Edmonia made a bust of his likeness, and the Shaw family loved it and bought the original. She made reproductions of the bust and sold the reproductions for $15 a piece, which was a pretty good amount of money back in the day. The piece was so popular that she made enough money to buy herself passage to Rome and made her the talk of the art world in the United States. She was interviewed for various publications in Boston and New York, all of which were abolitionist-run newspapers. This actually graded her because all of the reviews were fawning, and she kind of felt like a token for the group's larger human rights ambitions. Chapter 3. Rome. Wanting to escape to a somewhat less racist place, Edmonia made her way to Rome. Rome was kind of the place to be if you were a sculptor, because marble was readily available, and there were lots of trained assistants who could help you. She said in an interview with the New York Times, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art, culture, and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. One of the most remarkable things about Edmonia was she did all of her work herself. Most other sculptors hired out assistants, but one, she couldn't really afford to pay anyone to help her, and two, as a Native and African-American woman, she was afraid people would accuse her of not actually being the artist. While in Rome, she became best friends with actress Charlotte Cushman and anti-slavery activist Maria Weston Chapman. She was also a good friend of an expatriate sculptor named Harriet Hosmer. And this is wonderful. All of my feminist friends and listeners will really enjoy this. The writer Henry James was like, what's up with these lady artists? He wrote, that strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors who at one time settled upon the seven hills in a white marmorian flock. 
One of the sisterhood, if I am not mistaken, was a negress whose color, picturesquely contrasting with that of her plastic material, was the pleading agent of her fame. Just file all this away under men being confused by women existing since time immemorial. Anyway, Edmonia lived and worked in Rome for at least 20 years. She made frequent trips back to the United States to show and sell her work, and she enjoyed a pretty good amount of fame. She even scored at least two commissions that were worth $50,000 in today's money. Neoclassical art, however, started to lose its popularity toward the latter half of the Victorian era. And if you're not familiar with the term, neoclassical art is basically art that was modeled on the Greco-Roman art of 2,000 years ago. So for sculpture, think marble cherubs and drapey clothing. Not much is known about Edmonia's later years, to the point that we actually didn't even know where she was buried until the 2000s when a researcher painstakingly tracked her down to an unmarked grave in London. It's believed that she died there in 1907 of a kidney disease. Even more astonishing, in 2017, a GoFundMe successfully funded a proper grave for Edmonia. She is buried in St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery in London. Chapter 4, Edmonia's Art That was Edmonia's life story. Let's talk a bit about some of her most notable pieces. I already told you about her bust of Shaw, which was her big break. She also did busts of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. Grant, it is believed, actually sat for her and loved his bust. Her most famous piece depicting Native American life was called Old Arrowmaker and His Daughter. It depicts a Native American man showing his daughter how to make an arrow. Now, all of her pieces were in white marble, but interestingly, she tended to whitewash the features of her subjects of color. In this piece, the man is wearing traditional Native garb, but the daughter is given features to make her look more like a neoclassical white woman, complete with drapey robe. This was also true of her piece, Forever Free. The man in the sculpture is breaking free of chains and has African-American textured hair and facial features, while the woman, again, is made to look more white. A theory of why she did this was economic. She might have thought her work would sell better if she catered to a white audience. Edmonia also did a series of busts based on Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha, which was about Ojibwe warriors. Her Hiawatha sculptures are currently in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. All right, now to Edmonia's main event. This last piece I'm going to talk about has enough of a story for its own podcast. Edmonia spent four years sculpting what would become her largest work, The Death of Cleopatra. The piece was 3,000 pounds and over five feet high. Cleopatra has been represented countless times in art, but up until that point, she had always been portrayed as a seductress and scantily clad, never as the freaking pharaoh that she was. Edmonia's sculpture depicts Cleopatra lifeless on her throne. Like, her eyes are closed and lips are pursed, her head is back, and her arm hangs over the side. The woman is dead. She shipped the piece to Philadelphia in 1876 as part of the Centennial Exhibition. Some praised her for such a feat of sculpture. Others were shocked and appalled and found the image of an actual death to be ghastly and inappropriate. It was the talk of the exhibition, but the piece did not sell. Here's where things get real weird. After not selling again in the Chicago Interstate Industrial Expo, somehow the sculpture ended up in a Chicago saloon. She sat there for a few years before a gambler and possible gangster named Blind John Condon bought the statue from the bar owner. Mr. Blind John had a prized racehorse named, you guessed it, 
Cleopatra. When the racehorse died, Blind John put the statue on the horse's grave as its tombstone, probably the most epic pet tombstone ever. It sat on this horse's grave in front of a racetrack in Chicago until the 1970s. Then it was moved to a construction storage yard. No one had any idea where the statue came from or who had sculpted it. Edmonia was lost to everyone at this point. So this beautiful marble statue sat exposed to the elements for almost a century when some Boy Scouts found it and wanted to help restore it. Much like what keeps happening in poor Spain, these Boy Scouts were amateurs and just ruined the statue even more. In 1985, a dentist and president of the local historical society acquired the statue and put it in a mall. Let's just take a second to remember that one of the most famous sculptors of the 1800s had her piece used as a racehorse's tombstone and was now in a mall. The researcher who had tracked down Edmonia's grave was actually the one to finally verify that it was Edmonia's death of Cleopatra, and the statue was given over to the Smithsonian, where it finally rests to this day. I didn't find this tidbit in my research, but on one of the podcasts I listened to, apparently there was also a spat between the researcher and the historical society. Like, they did not want to give up the statue because they felt it was their heritage, and the Smithsonian had to be like, um, no, this belongs to America. Anyway, there you have it. Edmonia Lewis. While there's not much in the way of movies or historical fictions about her, there's a great biography called The Indomitable Spirit of Edmonia Lewis that you can check out. You can also listen to episodes about Edmonia on the podcast Stuff You Missed in History class and Art History Babes. I highly recommend Art History Babes because it's funny and delightful, and you guessed it, the hosts have a background in art history. So if that's your jam, they do a much better job than I at talking about Edmonia's artistic merits. I also talked about that podcast in my episode on Artemisia Gentileschi in 2020. Check out the show notes for links to all of these sources and some pictures of Edmonia's art. That's all I have for you this month. I'm doing my best to get back into the groove, but work is crazy, and I'm done with cancer treatment March 15th, so I promise I'll be back, but I don't know when. You can subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. But stay tuned because we're going back to Tudor times and we'll be covering Mary Queen of Scots and her cousin Elizabeth I in the coming months. Until then, dear listeners, I hope that you're staying safe and that you're happy and healthy. Feel free to email me anytime at hi at immortalperfumes.com if you would like to make any requests. Bye. We'll talk soon. (laughs) 